Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, and Emma Dunkley, our retail banking correspondent. Our guest this week is Jane Howard, who is head of personal banking at RBS and NatWest. And also in the US, we've been talking to Caitlin Long, who is head of Symbiant, the blockchain specialist. Today, we'll be looking at Deutsche Bank after a torrid week of volatility on the stock market. Also, a look at RBS as it trials robot tellers. And finally, that interview with Caitlin Long from Symbiant, the blockchain specialist. So, Martin, I can't remember the last time Deutsche Bank's share price had such a volatile week. Its shares were down below 10 euros. What on earth is going to happen? Is this the end of Deutsche Bank as we know it? I don't think it's the end of Deutsche Bank as we know it, although people are talking about how this is reminiscent of the days leading up to the Lehman Brothers collapse. I think that's an exaggeration. I think that Deutsche Bank does have a very immediate problem of a demand for $14 billion from the US Department of Justice for mis-selling the toxic mortgage securities that were a big contributor to the last financial crisis. But They also have a longer term problem, which is arguably much more serious and doesn't just affect them, which affects much of the European banking sector. It's a combination of weak economic growth, low or ultra low or even negative, in many cases, interest rates for the foreseeable future, the rise of digitization in banking. And now you add into that the uncertainty around Brexit. And you've got an industry where the profitability is incredibly weak and not sufficient to, A, build capital, add into that demands from regulators for banks to have ever-increasing amounts of capital. So if the banks can't generate it organically and they don't have sufficient capital to cover their cost of funding, then it's very hard for them to attract capital externally from shareholders, from investors. And Deutsche Bank is being caught in the crosshairs of this problem. And its shares have fallen to multi-decade lows. And so it needs to address the short-term issue of the DOJ settlement and agree a settlement that is within its target range of three to five billion US dollars. But that's only the beginning. The senior bankers that I'm talking to say it's got to come up with a credible strategy for how does it become a sustainable, profitable business that investors want to invest in? Otherwise, how is it going to strengthen its balance sheet and attract capital from the investors without a story to say, here's what we're going to use your capital for and how we're going to generate a return on it that is attractive for you? Now, I think some of the options they have, as well as a rights issue, people think they could and probably should do something with one of their most attractive businesses, which is their asset management business, either sell parts of it or even an IPO of the asset management business, sell a minority stake 
the asset management business is generating a 20% plus return on equity. And by next year, they could sell a minority stake and that could help raise some capital and fix part of their problem. And they could start to develop a story. But the problem even with that is you're selling future profitability to raise capital in the short term. So there are no easy answers for Deutsche, but I think it's going to be a long, hard slog. The key thing is they've got new management since last year and John Cryan, the former UBS executive, has been chief executive of Deutsche since last year. He's a Brit and almost everyone you speak to think he's doing the right things. It's just it's a very tough job he's facing. One exception to that consensus is the head of the SPD, who's in the coalition government in Germany, who's been very critical of the bank under John Cryan's leadership, which you may say is unfair because he's the cleanup man and he's just inherited a lot of these problems. But nonetheless, it's interesting that the political classes are not rallying behind Deutsche as you might think they would in these difficult times. We've also had zero positive commentary from the dominant party in that coalition, the CDU, under Angela Merkel, the Chancellor. We're less than a year away from a German general election and bankers are just not popular, particularly with negative interest rates in Germany. It's a nation of savers. Savers are getting no return on their money and they blame banks for that. And investment bankers in particular have never been popular. Deutsche Bank is just not something where politicians are going to come out and champion it in the same way that they would BMW or Siemens or some of these big industrial groups. Interesting, though, that corporate Germany did rally around. There were a lot of fellow chief executives who made clear how important Deutsche Bank is to their prospects in the world. Yeah. So that has spurred some suggestions that if push came to shove and Deutsche did need some kind of bailout, even if the government wasn't there to stand behind them, as I suspect they actually ultimately would be, there could be some kind of corporate joint action to raise capital from the German blue chip companies. That's very reminiscent of the old style, what's formerly known as Germany AG, Deutschland AG, where everyone massed together. And I think that would probably be negative for the whole of the German economy in terms of foreign perceptions. But it's symptomatic of the scale of Deutsche's troubles that even these things are being debated now. Yeah, people talk about that. People say oh, they would never allow Deutsche to go down. You know, the government would get all the big institutions in a room and tell them to pony up the money and invest in Deutsche Bank's rights issue, however dire the situation. Maybe. I do think this idea that Germany will stand behind Deutsche Bank sounds perfectly logical, but actually the rules that are in place make it very difficult for the German government to engineer a bailout especially given the fact that under the new European Bank Resolution Recovery rules, Germany has prevented countries like Italy from bailing out their troubled banks and forced them to jump through all kinds of hoops to try and keep their banks afloat. So to then disregard those would be extremely controversial and very problematic. So I think it's going to be very tricky to do that, and especially in an election year. I think for the next year, the political climate in Germany is going to be increasingly anti-bank and anti-rescuing Deutsche. So I think they're going to have to do this on their own. Let's turn from that rather negative view of banking to a slightly upbeat story. Emma, not normally we were reporting on upbeat stories from RBS, but this one does feel rather as if it's an attempt to move on from crisis. Robots, they're starting to roll them out in terms of their retail banking service. Tell us more. 
RBS appears to be the first of the large UK high street banks, at least, to have plans to launch artificial intelligence to serve its retail customers. So it's developed artificial intelligence called Luvo with the help of technology giant IBM, so that when customers have a query such as I've forgotten my PIN number or I want to order a new debit card, they can go online, bring up a chat box and have a conversation essentially with this robot. But the difference difference between artificial intelligence and just having an automated process answering basic questions is that artificial intelligence can learn over time. So it can, over a number of years, with increasing number of interactions with customers, learn to answer more complicated questions. And at some point, it could even mimic human empathy so that if a customer is slightly angry, for example, Luvo can respond accordingly to mitigate any anger from the customer's side. All sounds great fun, but of course, ultimately, it's just about saving costs, isn't it? Not entirely. There is definitely a cost-saving element to it. There are estimates out there that in certain processes, this could actually save up to 80% of costs. But obviously, it does have the advantage of being able to serve customers 24-7, unlike with uh, human staff. So actually, there is a customer service angle to this as well. And other banks are looking to employ this internally, not just to serve customers. So for example, they could use it to help out with know your customer processes in terms of using AI to gather data on new clients that they're seeking to bring on board in a more efficient manner and in a way that could perhaps remove scope for human error but also things like monitoring trading activities within investment banks so AI can learn over time to spot anomalies with any trades that are being undertaken to help root out potential um, misconduct. Let's bring Jane Howard who is head of personal banking at RBS and NatWest in now. Jane maybe you could start by telling us how this is going to work in practice for customers. What it means for customers if they open a web chat they will be getting a welcome message. That will make it clear that they're not actually communicating with a human. They'll be asked what their question is or what their problem is. And then we will seek to answer that question using Luvo. What it means we can do is answer the question very quickly because clearly it has the capability to search through thousands of pieces of data. So in that sense, it's better than speaking to a real person. I think for me it's about looking for a complementary solution. What Luvo enables us to do is to answer the easier questions, the simpler questions, far faster. And that means we free up the human agent to deal with more complex questions that one of our customers might have. So if there's a question that stumps Luvo, he or she, is it male? Have we established this? I don't think actually, I don't think have established its gender, to be honest. Let's just say, call it Luvo. Let's say it then. It would pass you over to a human help desk person if the question stumps Luvo. Yes, so if Luvo isn't able to answer the question, it immediately routes through to a human advisor. Or actually, if our customer chooses to want to route through to a human advisor, at any point they can do that. Is there any application of this in branches? No, at the moment we have piloted this in web chat and the reason we've done that is because customers who tend to use online banking are very familiar with things like Siri, which is a very similar application and therefore they like this sort of technology. So we'll trial it with our customers in Royal Bank of Scotland using web chat and as we learn from the trial we'll then seek to understand how else could we use it to improve customer service. So, in essence, it's a service that you're trying to use to improve the experience for customers. 
but I imagine it's going to save you quite a bit of money as well. At the moment, that's not the driver of doing this. It isn't a cost-saving initiative. It's actually about reducing queuing time for our customers. So if we can use Luvo to answer the simple questions, it means our waiting times for our customers are reduced and then our human people who answer the web chat are able to deal with the other customers more quickly. Ultimately, you could see that it might save us money, but that's not the driver. What's important is improving service. Emma, RBS is, we think, the first to do this kind of thing, but they're not alone across the financial services space, are they? They're not alone. So a number of other insurers are looking to do similar things, but also more broadly, banks and insurers and other financial services companies are looking at biometrics as well. So, for example, we've had HSBC recently unveil uh, voice biometrics as a way to allow customers to authenticate and verify their identity when phoning into a call centre, for example, instead of having to reel off pin numbers and answer numerous questions about their mother's maiden name and their history. But at the moment, there aren't too many banks that are using biometrics to go ahead with payments and launch a payment, for example. Some of the new challenger banks, such as Number 26 in Germany, are actually using biometrics as a way to initiate payments. So, for example, customers of this new challenger bank can speak into their phone and say, Siri, I want to pay Patrick £10, and the payment is then sent. You can pay me £10 anytime you like, Emma. Finally, to our third item today, Ben McClanahan, our US banking editor, has been speaking to Caitlin Long, who's president and chairman of Symbiont. They are among the companies at the forefront of Wall Street's big push to do more with blockchain. Caitlin, welcome. Perhaps you could start by explaining in very simple terms how Symbiont does what you say it does, which is to make capital markets, in quotes, safer, fairer and more efficient. Yeah, Symbiont's technology allows the direct registration and issuance of securities on a blockchain, which means that the ownership of the securities can be tracked directly by people who own securities. In today's environment, your ownership is not actually tracked. Most stock is held, for example, in street name, and there are layers of intermediaries within the financial system who keep track of securities on a netted and omnibus basis, in other words, not on a person-by-person, owner-by-owner basis. So the system does lose track of who owns what, and under the Symbiont blockchain technology, no one would ever lose track of who owns what. And is it as secure as all these layers of complexity guarantee? It is, and that's one of the benefits of blockchain technology. It actually has much greater cybersecurity than the centralized systems that are hub-and-spoke systems and have unfortunately proven too easy for bad actors to invade. Everything in these decentralized blockchain-based systems is maintained on the thousands of nodes that are part of these networks and is encrypted. And so I would posit that this is a much stronger IT architecture across the board. And there's a trend in in IT generally towards decentralized systems, and this is part of that trend. And as I understand it, you're not interested in converting or tokenizing all, all these existing physical assets out there. You want to focus on new issuance, right? Yes, and that's because of the nature of of Symbian's technology. There are companies out there who are focusing on tokenizing securities that have already been issued, but we think about it with our partners at the state of Delaware as before blockchain and after blockchain. We're focused on the after blockchain, which is 
everything would be registered directly on the blockchain and therefore securities would be issued directly on the blockchain, not in paper form. Explain this deal with Delaware, which is where lots of U.S. companies are incorporated. Indeed. About two-thirds of the S&P 500 is incorporated in Delaware. It is the state of corporate incorporation in the United States. And a majority of private companies, a vast majority, are incorporated in Delaware. So the fact that Delaware's blockchain initiative is looking at a number of different blockchain applications within the government services area is very interesting. But for securities investors, it's the potential for registration in a blockchain in lieu of a piece of paper that is so powerful. And how is that better for the company? Well, it allows the company to keep track of its capitalization table, its investor base, much more easily than today. Companies today have to call one of these intermediaries and get a report. In fact, actually, one of the clients that I used to work with told me that every time he called to get his shareholder list when he went out on the road to visit investors, he spent a couple hundred thousand dollars, and it took a couple of weeks and was inevitably out of date. Mm -hmm. So on a blockchain, the company would know at all times who owns their shares and actually actually would be able to communicate directly with those shareholders in a blockchain world in theory as well. So it sounds as if you're trying to disintermediate some of these powerful actors that currently stand between companies and their shareholders. How are they taking it? Great question, because yes, the financial sector does have a number of intermediaries that really were created for historical reasons that don't really apply today. Uh, well, for example, securities depositories such as the DTC in the U.S. or Euroclear or Clearstream in Europe, those are central securities depositories that were created. If you go back to the early 1970s, there was a paperwork crisis on Wall Street because trading volumes had outpaced the back office's ability to keep up. And so what it happened... It was literally a paperwork crisis. It was literally a, a paperwork crisis. Literally, yes. And the New York Stock Exchange was closed on Wednesday afternoon to allow the clerks to keep up with the volume. And paper certificates were wheeled back and forth between the various brokers down near Wall Street. That's why they were all located down there at one time. And so what happened was that these central intermediaries were created in order to facilitate the settlement of stock trades. And the pieces of paper were what's called immobilized at the Depository Trust Corporation to facilitate the increased trading volume. And as technology evolved, the storage costs were still high and computer processing power was still expensive. So it never really made sense to adopt that 40-year-old market structure to today's world. But now, finally, we have the technology that I think makes it pretty compelling based on cost savings, based on counterparty reduction, based on the desire to settle transactions more than what's called T plus three. Mm -hmm. If you buy a security in the United States, it takes three days for it to settle in your account. And that's all based on historical reasons that no longer apply today. So we're starting to consider whether that old market structure should actually be changed. And Delaware is on board with this, is it? Well, Delaware isn't one of the players that would change the market structure per se, but it is one of the important regulatory changes because if Delaware allows corporations to register on a blockchain, they're not requiring it, but they would allow the, the option for a corporation to register on a blockchain, what will happen is there's no paper certificate anymore. And the way shares are issued in the United States, or bonds for that matter, are issued as well, is there's a piece of paper that sits at the DTC. So if there is no piece of paper because the corporation has incorporated on a blockchain, then what's the role of the central securities depository? And now you've really changed the plumbing of Wall Street. Mm -hmm. And it does not mean, back to your earlier question, that the intermediaries go away. 
but it's almost like the telephone companies. AT&T and Verizon were landline companies, and that was their business. And then this wireless thing came along. And they both adapted very well. And they're mostly wireless companies now. And so the question for the intermediaries is, what value-added services can they provide to this new regime, which will have very simplified plumbing and a lot less cost and counterparty risk? So assuming Delaware says yes, what then? Do the rest of the states follow through? Yes. The uh, expectation of the governor in Delaware is that the corporate bar will recommend that this option be included in Delaware corporate law. There's a lot of support in the state of Delaware, from what I understand. Mm -hmm. Uh, Why is that? It's interesting because when you register a corporation, you actually have to pay a franchise tax. And keeping track of the taxes more accurately is important to any government. But also, sorting out the capital structure of a private company that hasn't necessarily kept up with their filings is something that takes a lot of staff time at the government level. And so if the corporation is registered on a blockchain and the shares are issued on a blockchain to private investors... There will never be any question as to how many shares were outstanding and issued. And so it makes the job easier for both sides. So it's a cost efficiency thing. It's cost efficiency and just simpler record keeping. Everyone shares the same record, which is ultimately the beauty of a blockchain. Thank you very much, Caitlin Long. Well, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin, Emma and our guest here, Jane Howard from RBS. Also Ben and his guest, Caitlin Long from Symbiont. And thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon and Amy Keane. Until next week, goodbye. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.